Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast. I am joined this week live and in person with AJ Molnix and our very own Joshua Huber is filling in for Matthew Wiedemann as he is unavailable this week. Guys, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Aaron. Yep, thank you, Aaron. AJ, you were out ill. You you took ill for a while. How are you now? I'm getting there. I'm feeling better. Okay. Glad, glad to be back. Are you still contagious? Who can say? Oh. <laughs> Hopefully not. Okay. Well, if both Josh and I get sick, we'll know. Josh, thanks for joining us today on the pod. I know that you're always trying to get in on the podcast, and sometimes we don't let you. So how are you feeling about your privilege situation here? Overjoyed, Aaron. Overjoyed. And let the reader understand the tone of Josh's voice. That probably means sarcasm. (laughs) And the tone of mine, because uh, Josh is a busy guy. He does love reading and talking about the Bible, but just not on a recording. But today he's going to, and um, I want to start, AJ, by asking you about the week and day numbers that we're covering and the text that we're covering, so that way um, any listeners who are following along can can know where we're at. This week is week 30. We made it to week Holy 30. Holy smokes. Yeah. Days 204 through 210. And how many days are in a year? <laughs> 365? Yeah. We're like two-thirds of the way through then, right? Yep. That's a big deal. It's a big deal. Mm-hmm. So the Old Testament section for this week, we're going to finish out First Chronicles, so chapters 25 through 29. Mm. And then we're going to start Second Chronicles, chapters 1 through 10. Absolutely. When, when we're reading texts in the Old Testament, uh, sometimes there are just a lot of names, and it's hard to pay attention, but there are a few interesting details nonetheless. So even if you are like, I'm not, I'm not following all the names, I thought that there was a really interesting thing here, where in chapter 25, David and the officers of the army set apart the sons of Asaph, Haman, and Jeduthun, who were to prophesy accompanied by lyres and harps and cymbals. These guys prophesied under the authority of the king. They prophesied to the accompaniment of these instruments, giving thanks and praise to God. Um, And David apparently also has a a seer. Um, So how does this help us understand the New Testament uses of the word prophesy? And what what should we understand that these guys are doing? Um. Prophesying, I know that back in Sunday school, elementary, junior high, whenever we're talking about prophecy, we're talking about like future prediction and fulfillment of it. Um, I think you have to broaden that here um, based in context with giving thanks and praise to the Lord as, like you just said, really defining what prophecy is here, I think. And uh, it's interesting that they're doing exactly that with background music. And sometimes we do that in our church where we have the piano in the background and a word of thanks or praise being given to God or directing our focus. And uh, can we use this text to, to say that's biblical then? Is that what they're doing? Yeah, Maybe I don't know. I mean, I, I was thinking about that, though, as I read this. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I used to get really cynical when I would be visiting a church somewhere where a guy would pray mm-hmm. and music would be playing in the background right, or right. something like that. Um, but I as I was reading this, I'm like, 
these people are giving thanks and praise to God. So even if we can't fully define what prophecy is here or how it relates to the New Testament use of the word, uh, at least we know that Mm -hmm. there's not a problem with speaking to the Lord with music, you know, playing, playing along with you. I think that kind of goes along with a point you made last week where you were saying how in nature you view nature as giving God glory, declaring mm-hmm. God's glory. And even the joy that we can feel, you mentioned that yeah. is evidence that that God is there and that God, you know, that that's how we can experience joy. And I think that that's similar here with music. You know, that's a way that, that testify that God has given, you know, the people made in his image creativity and musical ability. And when people use it to mm-hmm. prophesy and to facilitate worship, I think, think that's a good thing. Yeah, I think that's right, especially because music engages the whole person, right? So sometimes we're like, because we should, giving thanks and praise to the Lord, and we don't feel it, and that's okay. We don't always have to feel like we're thankful to give thanks to God, but I think there is something about music that helps our emotions line up with what we're saying. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's one of the reasons why when I'm like, feeling spiritually dry or down or something. There are certain songs that are saying true things that I need to affirm, but don't feel like it, but they've been done creatively with music and it helps me get there. And so I think where I used to be cynical, I'm a little bit less cynical. And I think you're right. Maybe this verse would at least give a, an example of this happening outside the modern debate about music. If that's still happening, I don't know. Dance. The worship wars. Yeah, the worship wars. That's a good question. Where, where, where's the line between like manipulating, you know, a person, their emotions to get them to respond in a way, versus bringing the whole person um, to really love God with all yep. that they are, helping them to feel rightly um, yeah. about what they're singing, the truths that they're hearing, and and praising God for all that He is. Yeah, I remember listening to a camp evangelist preaching on Which like. One? I'm not going to say because I don't... (laughs) Off record. record. Yeah, and I don't know that he would still say this because everyone grows and develops and changes in in Mm -hmm. some of their thinking, but he was being really critical of people who after they would sin or something, instead of like being just penitent, like immediately praying and repenting, they would like turn to Christian music or something like that. You know, he's like he was criticizing people who had an "I just sinned" playlist. So, like, <laughs> I don't know what all he meant by that, but um, I wonder if that relates a little bit to like there are times where we know we are not feeling rightly towards God or relating rightly to Him, and sometimes music helps us helps us get into that right frame of mind as we ref- it it leads to reflection and contemplation. And obviously music can lead us in our emotions in the wrong direction as well. Right. Obviously we can think of someone like Saul who had David play for him, play the harp. And sometimes it calmed him down and other times it infuriated him. So music by itself is not, not the thing, but um, this, this verse maybe causes us to think about that a little bit more. But Josh, what is a seer? You know, David has a seer here in verse 5, Haman, the king's seer. What What is a seer? Are we just talking prophet? I, I, I'm not sure if there's a difference, major difference between a seer and a prophet here. On a random note, is this the same Haman that wrote Psalm 88? <laughs> so 
it could be that that name could have been a nickname applied to his family line. Right. right. That's the only thing that I read in my notes. Okay. So it could be the guy could who be was him incredibly or his depressed and despair and yep. wrote the most sorrowful psalm we have. Yeah. Could I mean, be the same guy. It fits because, mm-hmm. you know, it seems like mm. a similar duty mm-hmm. here. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know if this is accurate or not because it, or at least not accurate to the biblical text, but I listen often to a podcast or go ahead. Sorry. Uh, Second Samuel twenty four eleven. When David arose in the morning, the word of God came to the prophet Gad, David's seer. I don't know. That's the only. So prophet and seer are maybe used synonymously that's, there. That's, that's a good insight. Know. Yeah. So there's this there's this podcast that I listen to on the regular called Lore, and he was talking about you know different stories where people will go to an oracle versus going to a seer, and he was saying that an oracle is like someone who receives a text message from the divine with exactly what to say, where a seer is more like someone who's scrolling the deity's social media page. So they've got a good sense of what the deity is thinking, but they don't have a direct word from the deity. Mm -hmm. So I I don't know if that fits with the way that the biblical text uses those terms, but um, I thought that was interesting. It's interesting that we're talking about this in the Old Testament because in our Acts reading there's a debated prophesying te- Yeah, verse. Agabus yep. yeah. and and, and uh, the three virgin daughters yep. who prophesied and spoke through the Spirit. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting thing, too, and we should get into that in a few moments. Um, but as we finish up First Chronicles, we obviously get to the end of David's life, and he gives this prayer um, before all of the people, after giving a massive contribution to the building of the temple, and other Israelites contribute as well. And uh, da- David prays here. He prays to the Lord. He thanks him. He worships him. He asks that his son would live with an undivided heart to carry out all your commands, your decrees, and your statutes. And I think it's interesting because when we were reading First and Second Kings, we eventually see Solomon and the big accusation against him is that he didn't follow God with an mm-hmm. undivided heart. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we see David's prayer here, and uh, then, interestingly, they sacrifice a bunch of animals. You know, a thousand bulls, a thousand rams, a thousand lambs. And this pales in comparison to Solomon's sacrifice uh, after he, when, when dedicating the temple, because there he sacrifices like 22,000 cows Mm -hmm. and i i did a quick googling on that one how many gallons of blood in a cow it's like 10 gallons didn't they have to move the sacrifices because it didn't all fit where you know you traditionally would could could be i don't know i think they moved everything down to that courtyard yeah but all that to say i i just was thinking there's a lot of sacrificing that goes on here and it's a reminder that uh as we read these texts there is a distance between us and them, and our experiences just aren't there. Um, So we have to read a little bit more imaginatively, Um, and I think it adds a little bit of the real world into our worship, where sometimes we think about worshiping the Lord as something neat and clean and tidy that you do in your row at church, and it doesn't involve the rest of the The world and, and in the messiness of life and everything else, but, but it does. And, and even in this 
great act of worship, they finish by eating and drinking with great joy in the Lord's presence that day. And I just think that's that's a good model for all of life. But even as we think about our worship on Sundays, how you know how are we thinking about our worshiping? Is right. it just like, hey, I'm going to come and I don't want to be involved in what's? I just want to like passively go through this. Well, worshiping God isn't passive, and mm-hmm. and I think in these texts that makes it really really clear. So bringing the messiness into the church a little bit, how do we steer away from this ideal of? I mean, I think how we grew up mostly is just churches where you got to put the performance on a little bit, put your clean act on. Um, how do we how do we fight against people, you know, kind of adopting that idea? Because that's part of our our little bit of our backgrounds, I think, in the fundy world of Tad. That's that was the image given to us. Can you elaborate a little bit? <clears throat> I mean, I mean, if you have sure. I mean, say. I can only speak from my personal experience, but. Growing up, you go to church, you have your act together, you oh, you okay, you okay. you put on this facade like you're okay. You wear know, a nice suit wear and a, a nice white shirt and a tie. I mean, the BJU world, you you were there. You you saw how it was, yeah. and it's like you're not allowed to act, you know, like you actually have issues or you actually sin. You have to almost, you know, have this facade of perfection about you, and uh, you're then like horrified when you actually find a real sinner among you. Mm. Is that Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Yeah, yeah, yeah life together. Right, so. I'm just wondering, I mean, that's how I grew up. I think a lot of churches maybe still have some, maybe some have pendulum swung the exact opposite way. Um, I'm just wondering in the church, what's how do we appropriate or appropriately talk about, you know, it's okay to, to come with your burdens, your problems, admit that you're a sinner. Um, what, what does that look like in our church to fight against that perfectionist ideal that we must have? I don't have a well-rounded answer <laughs> or anything, but my first thought was, you know, we follow Jesus, right? And he spent most of his time with with sinners and the lowest of society and the people who wouldn't be considered clean or yeah. um, you know, appropriate society. Yeah, I think looking at this text, I wouldn't talk about the messiness so much in terms of like bringing being open about our sin or something. Sure. I think that that's a part of it, but what I'm talking about more is the fact that their worshiping is fully involved and it's not as neat and tidy. And I think um, when we come gathered on a Sunday, we can start to get in the mode of we don't want anything out of place. Not the smallest hair on someone's head should be out of place. So if a kid starts making noise, that's bad. Get Stop it. Get the kid out right away. Mm-hmm. Or like... I shouldn't go to church if I'm just like, you know, not perfectly presentable or something. Or if there's a sound with the uh, a problem with the mics, like our worship was interrupted. And, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But if you think about like all that it would take to sacrifice thousands of animals, there are so many mishaps along the way. You know, priests accidentally cutting their thumb. Is there? You know, it's just like all of this is our. We're coming as people, not as perfect robots or something. Mm-hmm. So what what I'm trying to push towards is just for us to be us. And that relates to not trying to hide our, our sinfulness, but I think more just not trying to hide our humanity mm-hmm. uh, and actively engaging. And probably a lot of this, you and I, Josh, as we're up there or whoever's leading, sets a certain atmosphere tone. or tone. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think... 
being willing to laugh when something silly happens, you know, like that, that stuff sometimes happens like dumb things and not being so concerned about being proper that we lose a sense of being and being all there. Uh, So I don't know that there's a way to script it or to perfectly arrive at that, but I think we Mm -hmm. definitely want to push against any idea that we would have of when we come to worship God, to worship God means anything that's not perfectly prim and proper can't be before the presence of God. Mm -hmm. That's not how it works. And and I think this last line about them eating uh, with great eating and drinking with great joy in the presence of the Lord that day. I I think when we imagine meals where people are eating and drinking with great joy, none of us are thinking of the, you know, Von Trapp family when they're perfectly in order. We're thinking of them when they're having fun. And, And that, I think, is maybe more of what's to typify us when we're expressing joy before the Lord. Now, at the same time, I also I would also want to make sure we're not losing the fact that we have to be able to be a community that's made up of people who are disposed towards joy and sorrow that day, people who are experiencing time of blessing and time of hardship. So we don't want to just say, if you're not smiling when you come mm-hmm. to church, mm-hmm. right. you're a problem. That's leading us right back into the, you need to be prim and proper. We're just adding a category of smiles to prim and proper. Uh, But I think these texts sort of direct us towards being wholly participating Mm -hmm. as humans with all of our weird human features involved. Yeah. 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 Only thing I was going to add on top of that was just, you you, you already hit on it. It's basically done from the pulpit, a lot of it. And I think the call to worship, the the corporate confession that we have every week kind of sets that tone that you're talking Mm -hmm. about. And we're we're trying to present our our humanity before God, and, and in a balanced way, not not pretending we're perfect, um, but at the same time acknowledging we're we're sinners, and we we come before Him in light of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so AJ, what advice would you give Josh and I to change about what we're doing from the the platform to help cultivate this? <laughs> That's a loaded question. List all the things we can do better. <laughs> I think you guys do a pretty good job. We've had a lot of examples of disruptions in the service and mics. We still are working on getting those <laughs> things tweaked. And, um, you know, I think for the most part, you know, those examples you gave is, you know, they're from they're real examples because that's happened. I think, I think there's that right balance between coming and working hard to help facilitate worship, regardless of how people are feeling when they, when they come. And, but also realizing that we're all, imperfect and mistakes happen and you just don't let that interrupt yeah keep yeah moving on. absolutely and we're going to keep moving on to second <laughs> chronicles as solomon is good segue. good segue why thank you this we're professionals here right <laughs> so um as solomon is uh sort of appointed as the king he is doing a, a good thing as he's building the temple uh, and he built a royal palace for himself. So I want to know what you guys think about the fact that David already built a royal palace for himself, and now Solomon's building a royal palace for himself, and then he builds a different palace or house, I guess, for his uh, daughter of Pharaoh wife. Um, what, what are you guys making of the maybe excess and decadence of Solomon's lifestyle 
that has nothing to do with building the temple of the Lord. I hadn't really thought about the fact that David had already made a palace and Solomon decides to build his own. I never really made that connection. I didn't think about that. Um, I guess I pictured it more of like an expansion where he's just the royal dwelling. You know, he's he's got his own wing now and along with all of the the family that he acquires eventually. Um, but the one detail that did stick out to me is that, you know, Chronicles seems to be much more positive, like you said before, and it's more of a, um, less ambiguous about Solomon and his morality than in Kings. But this one detail where he says that, the chronicler says that, you know, Solomon made this dwelling place for Pharaoh's daughter because, you know, the implication is because she was likely, you know, pagan, so it wouldn't make sense for her to be near. Yeah, yeah, and even there, he's a little bit cryptic because depending on the angle that you look at it, you could say, okay, there's a problem because this guy is getting a wife from the pharaoh, the the ruler of the nation that once enslaved them. Mm -hmm. Or you could look at it from the angle of the second line, which is his rationale of, of the city of David is a holy place because the Ark of the Covenant was there. So it's like this dual, I, I want my foreign wife and I'm going to protect God's holiness. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what to make of that. I, I find it somewhat ambiguous, more, more than the kings, because they're just like, these guys did really bad things. You know, he had this many wives and this many concubines. But here, none of that is recorded. I, I don't know. I just want you... When you're talking about the building of his own house and of his queens, is this before or after the temple? Is this before? Or I'm, I'm looking for... Uh, they the happen simultaneously, simultaneously over 20 years, I believe. So he's doing all of it at Maybe once. I'm wrong. Okay. Um, not that order tell me, Tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> That's fine. I was just curious. I'm not sure that. So is this justification then for megachurch pastors to own luxurious mansions <laughs> and pools? I don't and think jets? so. Oh, it's not. Not um, if you get to the end of the story. <laughs> now, I think the most important thing, of course, is that at the end of chapter five, mm-hmm. um, the glory of the Lord filled God's temple. Mm-hmm. All right. This is important to keep in mind because in a few weeks we'll be reading of a rebuilding of the temple, and I don't think that this happens. Um, in fact, it, it doesn't happen, in that it doesn't happen ever until Jesus walks into the temple. Uh, so this happens, we'll get the destruction of the temple. That's narrated pretty quickly here as we get get further along. But um, yeah, what, what, what are you guys thinking as you look at this scene especially coming off of 1st and 2nd Kings, where we know the end of that story already. I was thinking more of just the connection with our New Testament reading, where, you know, Paul's going around and saying, have you guys received the Holy Spirit yet? You know, just God dwelling with his people. And so we see Mm -hmm. actually a lot of space given to this, you know, the ark brought in and God's glory dwelling there. And, you know, it's such a special event, a joyous event, kind of the pinnacle of what we've been reading so far in the Old Testament, that it just gives significance to the fact that we have God dwelling with us mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, through More his profound. spirit. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's it, something to be thankful for and to, to meditate on. Uh, yeah, no so. longer a material, physical location, but with his people, we have that great honor, that privilege of 
him being with us. Yeah, absolutely. I want you to just look up one thing. Is that okay? <clears throat> I don't know. Do we allow that? Is that allowed on this podcast? From time to time. Time yeah. to time. Yeah. It just shows you that you're not prepared. <laughs> you know, that is that is for sure. And you know I'm 100% prepared today, so. We all, yeah, everybody. So. Yeah. Solomon dedicates the temple with this really long prayer before the Lord, and it establishes this tradition of play, praying towards the temple. He requests that, you know, in all these situations, if someone even prays towards the temple, that God would hear them. And this is a reminder of the ancient way of thinking about a sacred place. It was a, a place where you could almost have a guaranteed connection to God. Mm-hmm. So that's something that we don't really think about, but as we transition into our New Testament reading in a little bit, mm-hmm. that's important to remember that that now someone doesn't need to pray towards the temple or right. go into the temple to be assured, mm-hmm. God will hear me when I talk to him. It's God's spirit is given and he hears you wherever you are. Right. So I would just briefly recommend a book by a guy named Blake Hearson called Go Now to Shiloh, which is a biblical theology of sacred space that articulates this Mm -hmm. a bit further. And if you don't want to read the book but want to hear from him directly, there's an episode on our church podcast where I interviewed him, and you can hear him talk about this in more detail. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that's when you read about Joan and turning his face towards the temple. I mean, I think that's where I, I first thought, oh, well, you just said exactly that. It's turning towards God, guaranteeing your, your, you know, his presence with you and looking to him in that place. And I think that's what Jonah's doing in the belly of the fish. That's what he says. Yep. And I think that sheds light even there and across the, the board, I'm, I'm sure. Not yeah, well, in the book of Daniel, when Daniel, he's praying yep. three times a day, towards praying toward, temple, right. here explicitly mm-hmm. in Solomon's prayer is that after they've been exiled pretty much, right, mm-hmm. um, when they're taken away from the land, that they can pray towards this Example, and and you'll hear. Um, And for if you're looking for those verses, that's in verse 36 of chapter six, all the way down to verse 39, so that when the people sin against God and their captors deport them to a distant or nearby Mm -hmm. country, when they come to their senses in the land where they were deported, Mm -hmm. I mean that's that's Jonah being deported into the sea. Mm -hmm. He came to his senses. Daniel, others, um, that they'd pray towards the temple and that you'll hear their prayer and petitions in heaven, your dwelling place, and uphold their cause. May you forgive your people who sinned against you. So this is an important thing. Sometimes it's lost on us why Daniel would be praying Mm -hmm. in that direction. Um, We don't need to pray in that direction. We don't need to locate where Jerusalem is and pray in that way, Mm -hmm. as we've already discussed it's interesting to me that Solomon prays this prayer, and then later God responds to it in a lengthy way. And he tells him, if you walk before me, if you remain faithful, I'll establish your throne. But if you turn away and abandon me, if you serve other gods, I'll uproot Israel from the soil I gave them. Mm-hmm. And this temple that I have sanctified for my name, I will banish from my presence. So it's interesting there that even in God's response, it almost seems like it will be hopeless for people to pray towards Jerusalem once God's removed them from the soil mm-hmm. because he's he's banishing his presence from it. Mm. But he's, he is merciful and, and listens and draws them back. Well, and the chronicler wrote this pretty late, right? Like, is this the oldest, like, Old Testament book because it's at the end of the Hebrew Bible? 
So it'd be it's just interesting, you know, his thoughts as he's recording this. And yeah, you know, he's isn't it like Ezra and Nehemiah? Well, yeah. So if you read the end of Second Chronicles, and we'll talk about this in a few weeks, I'm sure. Second Chronicles in the first verses of Ezra are the exact same text. So it's like they're joined together almost. We've been saying that it's it's a positive, like hopeful. I we only got into chapter ten where you know things really start to go downhill. Just curious how that you know how hopeful is it is it still you know through some of these other accounts. It'll be interesting to read that. Yeah, so so the difference between king again, like trying to compare the differences. Yeah, so I think we'll still (laughs) see some descriptions of the failures of many of these kings, but you'll notice that the failures of Solomon and David are muted Mm -hmm. in this description. And as we get to the end of Second Chronicles, there's this hope of, of the New Jerusalem, pretty much, or the rebuilding of the city, the return of God's presence, that is connected to the Dave, Dave, Davidic line. So it makes sense to me that these two first Davidic kings don't have all of their dirty laundry aired in the same way that some of the later kings mm-hmm. still are described in ways that are pretty negative. So it still gives hope that there, there will be a return to... Because that's the positive thing it's being compared to. Yeah. With the, okay. Yep, yep. Got it. Yeah, and even as we continue reading in chapter 10, it's interesting that despite this nice or the best of ways of looking at Solomon's rule, there's still the admission that Solomon ruled over people with a harsh yoke. Mm-hmm. His, his father's service was harsh and the yoke was heavy. And it almost makes you hear yeah. Queen Sheba's words a little bit differently. It's like, okay, there's some political pandering when she says, how happy are your men? How happy are these servants of yours who always stand in your presence hearing your wisdom? You know, I think sometimes we read that and we're like, Solomon was awesome. But then if we read it as we would a normal story, you see this queen He's buttering up this guy, and then he's going to send her away with anything that she asks for. So we have to hear these as actual political delegate conversations, and there's always a better-than-reality statement when you're trying to earn favor with, with people, and that's proved a little bit in Chapter 10. So I would just challenge us not to always um, hear someone's citation and think that that's reality. Um, you know, that, that's something that we have to do. We, we don't want to be hyper-suspicious, but we do want to be a little s- suspicious. A little, yeah, a little <laughs> suspicious. Yeah. yeah, not super suspicious, just a little su- Just a little suspicious. suspicious. Yeah. You know, I talk about this a lot yeah. whenever we're going through narrative, is you can't always trust people's words. You know, they, the author relaying a citation from someone, especially when they don't comment on it, they're leaving it up to you to read and interpret this. And you have to use discernment and discretion when you do it. And I think we're especially supposed to hear these quotations with the Torah in mind. So when the, the Queen of Sheba is talking about how many servants he has and all the wealth he has and, and these sorts of things. That's not the description of the king that we find in Deuteronomy 17, you know, of what God was hoping for 
in a king. It sounds way more like the lament that Samuel gives when he talks about what they, what God would allow the king to do. And, and these are tough things for us to work with. But let's turn our attention to the book of Acts, the continuation, some might say, or part two of Luke's gospel. So he talks about the acts of the Holy Spirit in the apostles or through the apostles. We are in chapter 20. 20. Chapter 20 of Acts. AJ, who are we tracking with now? It seems like we were tracking with Peter for a while. What are, what are we observing in these chapters? We're tracking Paul now, and it seems like this chapter 20 is this maybe a transition chapter where we bridge between Paul's third missionary journey and his final recorded trip to Jerusalem, which I don't know if you want to talk about this or not, but a lot of people say how it kind of parallels Jesus and his kind of ministry in Galilee and then his uh, you know, travel to Jerusalem to his last yeah, yeah, a re- return to Jerusalem where all the problems are pretty much. And I think even there are some similarities where Paul has to be transported by night for a judgment to be, a verdict to be rendered so that he's not killed by a mob. You know, you, you sort of get some of the thing, same things with Jesus where there's a riot in a nighttime, you know, appearance. And then both of them are kind of denounced by the Jews, and they call upon Romans to bring about justice there. So I think there are a lot of similarities, both in the geography journey, but also in some of the events that take place. And what's the purpose behind that? Why why so many similarities? Is there something that we should take out of that, or is that just an interesting fact? Well, I think part of it is just an interesting fact, but I think also— it's maybe recorded in a way that we catch on to those similarities that we would otherwise miss so that we do start to see that Paul is filling up the afflictions of Christ Mm -hmm. and he's giving an imitation of Christ and showing us that we are the path of discipleship is following in the steps of Christ. And that looks different for, for everybody, but for the apostles, very often it looked like, like this sort of thing. And for Paul in particular, he's he has fulfilled his mission, starting with the Jews and going on to the Gentiles, just like Jesus. And we get a picture here that even with those who saw the one raised from the dead as they're proclaiming that, there are individuals who will still refuse to return to God, who will see him rightly. And I think what this sets us up for is an understanding that even though Christianity really is a flowering or a maturing of Judaism, there's going to be a division between these two bodies of belief because one, you know, Judaism isn't going to develop mm-hmm. as it should. So it, at this time, Paul can be worshiping in synagogues, teaching in synagogues. He can be in the temple right. worshiping as well at Jerusalem. So there's a coherence still between Christianity, the way, mm-hmm. and Judaism, but that's that's not going to be able to last forever, and it's proved here. Mm-hmm. So I, I haven't studied Acts in depth, so I don't know, but I think perhaps part of why Luke is describing things in this way is to emphasize that uh, there is going to be a distinction here, and mm-hmm. it's not mm-hmm. that um, Christianity is somehow its own thing. Mm-hmm. It's just Judaism becoming Spouted. mature yeah. and reaching its telos, right, going towards its end, 
and there are some who aren't coming along with it. Well, AJ, why don't you walk us through these four chapters and um, guide guide our discussion and thinking on our New Testament reading? Okay, so in chapter 20, in verse 7, we see, I think, the first explicit reference to having a, a sermon on that Sunday. kills. No, oh. no, that was that was Stephen. Isn't it? Well, he got he got <laughs> he killed. Got I guess. Hey, yeah, didn't so. you? Didn't, okay, that's depends true. On, depends on how you say it. Okay. Counts. Yeah. So we see maybe the first Sunday worship, explicit worship, where they worshiped on the first day of the week. Huh. So, interesting. You know, I didn't pick up on that. Yeah. Now, um, it's interesting to me that it says on the first day of the week we assembled to break bread, and obviously this is Luke talking, right? Yep. So he he's part of this. He's yep. with Paul all, all along the way, and it it seems like Acts gets more and more personal with Luke talking about his proximity to the events. Um, if this is Luke talking, I, I didn't look I, it up. I but. think for the most part, um, I there was a, the way that someone phrased it in the, what I was reading, it was kind of like the narrator is in and out. So like yeah. most of that, like you can tell that he's there in a lot of events, but some of it maybe reads like he's recording it from some third hand. Yeah. yeah. They assembled to break bread. It's interesting to me that the Lord's Supper, you know, this phrase breaking bread is a reference to the Lord's Supper, and that's the most definitive part of their gathering. You know, that's that's why they they gathered. And then Paul spoke to them. He preached, we might say, or conversed with them all night long until this guy Eutychus fell out of the window. Yeah, just falls three stories and is explicitly pronounced dead. And Paul brings him back to life. And then they go back. He keeps preaching till till the sun comes up. And the interesting thing I thought was that how just matter of fact the the account was. It's just like <laughs> this happened. He fell asleep. It's not his fault. It was late. But what is what is you take what is the the name? His name means lucky or something, <laughs> which I thought was funny. But he That's great. Fell out of the window. Yeah, I don't know. That's not lucky, but. But and then Paul just like got back to they went back to it and Paul talked until dawn. <laughs> I bet that woke everyone up though. I yeah, bet. got their attention. Is there any significance that he fell from the third story or anything? It's just like seems like an interesting fact there. You know, Josh, I think as we read this with medieval exegesis, we would understand the third story is the third day <laughs> and a resurrection happening following it. And uh-huh. just as Paul preached to these individuals, Jesus preached to. Uh, those in in Hades as he harrowed hell and then raised from the dead. So that's we should draw all of that out of the third story. You know, I don't know. I know like <laughs> we're being a little bit jokey about it, but I also think that's an interesting thing that that's noted, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, and there are maybe these figural patterns that we can pick up on of, of thirds mm-hmm. and resurrections. You know, Jonah in the belly of the whale for three, three days. days. And uh, kind of a, in a sense, a sign perhaps of, of the resurrection that accompanies Paul's preaching. You know, there are signs and wonders that appear all along the way, and we can only assume that this is intended by God. You know, just back in one chapter, chapter 19, verse 11, God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands so that even face claws and aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick and diseases left them, mm-hmm. evil spirits came out of them. I, I don't think it's a stretch to say that by God's divine providence, this guy fell from a third-story window and was raised from the dead as 
um, a way of vindicating or validating, mm-hmm. better yet, What's what Paul place? is preaching. And certainly he's preaching the resurrection to them. Right. You know, that's what's said over and over again. He, he mm-hmm. preaches the kingdom. He preaches the resurrection. You know, as he says goodbye to the Ephesians, he says it in a bunch of different ways. He said that he um, taught to them everything that was profitable, both publicly and from house to house. That's what was going on back there, which included repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Verse 25, preaching the kingdom. Uh, so there's, there's a lot going on here, and I'm talking myself into this more figural <laughs> reading. I think that might be right. You got me halfway through. I, initially, I was like, no way. That's, that's just a detail to what? show. It's, I've, been, I've yeah. been doing a lot of figural reading <laughs> hermeneutic stuff as of late. So it's like, yeah, that actually would, I think, fit. Yeah. It's kind of like Michael Scott where he starts talking. He doesn't know where he's going yet, but... I don't know that I want to be. Well, cut that out. I just that's no. You I'm can doing. leave that. That's fine. I just don't know that I want to think of myself that way. As Michael Scott. Yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Though sometimes I might feel like him as I'm trying to like figure out what it means to be an adult. Go ahead, Josh. You had something to say. No, I didn't. But no, that was an interesting thought. Yeah, just following again the numbers, significance of numbers, and then especially as we talk about resurrections or things prefiguring the yep. resurrection. It's just or postfiguring. Or postfiguring. Yeah. In this case, po- yeah, and. Just it happening over and over again to almost as a, I don't know, you're the literary guy, but it just seems like it's repetitive throughout yeah. the entirety of the Bible. Yeah, and I know that we, in our modern, postmodern way of thinking, are probably cynical and pejorative towards um, arithmology, you know, the study of numbers and these sorts of things. But mm-hmm. I'll tell you what, I'm reading a lot of Philo right now for my schoolwork, and in his account on creation— his commentary on the on the creation, he has this massive section on the meaning of the numbers of the days. And mm. for the seventh day, it's like almost the longest section of his oh. commentary because the numbers in philosophy go hand in hand, mm-hmm. and there are different ways of integrating the two. But where we kind of scoff at numbers right, right. or just tritely say, yeah, the, they thought of seven as the perfect number or something like that. Like this is actually a huge deal. And I think it would be a little bit arrogant of us to make fun of, of kind of these studies and numbers. It's making fun of something we don't understand. Right. Um, but yeah, this third, this third day thing is very often repeated throughout the, the entire Bible. I often hear it explained away like it's just a memory device or something like that too, or um, you know that you're just reading into it that you're making way more of it. Um, but I'm just curious, like the the ancient hearer, like how big was this a part of their understanding? I guess isn't that kind of the important question? Are they hearing it that way? Um, I, I guess I'm trying to figure yeah. out how did they think of these numbers? Yeah, I mean we'd have to investigate some Luke scholars and see mm-hmm. what they're saying. But mm-hmm. definitely from my reading of Philo, who was a yeah. Jew <laughs> in Alexandria, so in Egypt, he's reading the Old Testament. He's alive during the times of Jesus and Paul. Mm-hmm. So you at least have one example of a Jewish interpreter who would have done something with that number. Sure. And many of the church fathers did things with those numbers. You know, mm-hmm. uh, So we, we should probably be a little bit hesitant to just write it off as a memory device, especially Mm -hmm. if we're saying, no, these things actually happened. Mm -hmm. Um, It's literal. (laughs) We're saying that he was actually on the third floor of a building. And and I think, in my mind, that's a a testament to the divine 
providence of God that orders all things. And, um, and we ought to learn from that, you know, God is operating in these things for, for our good and Mm. instruction. So at the end of chapter 20, we see Paul knowing that he's not going to see these people again. Let's say you were going to leave our church and you weren't going to ever see us again. And you, (laughs) you have some last, last words for your congregation. You know, people would pay attention to that. Yeah. And so I think we should pay attention to what Paul says here. And he, he ends with the words of Jesus. It's better to give than to receive. What, yeah. what are we, what are we mm. to make of that? Yeah, I'd want to point out that he's addressing the Ephesian elders in particular yeah. here. I was and, make, yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I think this is, when you're reading his farewell address, it is really moving. Mm. And as I was reading it, I was thinking, that's the kind of pastor I want to be. And he's speaking to mm. pastors in particular. And as a side note, this is one of the places we'd look to to say that elders and overseers and pastors are all the same office because he's talking to the elders in verse 17. And then he says that they've been appointed as overseers in verse 28 who are to shepherd or pastor. It's the same word, the church of God. So he's showing them what it looks like to be an elder, overseer, shepherd in that means that you're going to be the kind of person who understands that according to the way God ordered the universe, it's better to give than to receive. And you give yourself in different ways at different times. He gave himself through physical persecution that he received. He gave himself through working to provide for himself. He gave himself to preaching publicly and privately, giving his whole life to this. And um, and it's more blessed to do that than to grab onto everything and live a, live a comfortable life. So, yeah, I think there's a lot to take away from in the, in this passage. I think there are also some inter- biblical interpretation things we can take away from this on how we apply the Bible. When when you look up the text where Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive, I d- I don't know that the context is going to be that you're going to support yourself by working a job instead of taking a salary somewhere. You know, like that's, I think we need to have a broader range of applying these, they're called macrisms, these blessings of Jesus, than something really narrow. Like, oh, it's better for me to give 10 bucks to someone than for them to give it to me. You know, we need to like walk into that and allow our entire way of experiencing the world to be reshaped by these words of blessing. One thing on chapter 20, though, is that Paul, after he said this, he knelt down and prayed with all of them. Like, he's just a pastoral guy, you know? I think that's... And his influence on them is obviously evident here, where many tears were shed by everybody, and they embraced Paul and kissed him and they grieved over the fact that they wouldn't see him again. Mm-hmm. Um, and they still released him and committed him to God, which we're going to see other people do as well. But I, th- I it just was really challenging to me to think about the kind of relationships I develop with people as a pastor. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe it would be challenging to people on the other side of it. What kind of relationships are they developing with their pastors? You know, I think relationships are always two-way. And I think, sadly, a lot of Christians I know wouldn't be really that sad if their pastor said, we're never going to see you again. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm, I'm headed out. Yeah. I think there's blame on 
everywhere when we have fractured relationships. But um, I think that's just a good good challenge uh, to think about the way we we relate and forge relationships mm-hmm. as we seek to strengthen the church and proclaim the gospel. Yeah, AJ, I don't know if you have any take on this, but there seems to be that invisible line between the laity, you know, the pastors and the congregation, the lay people. Um, I don't know. You, I, I'm just curious, like, have you... I mean, you've been to multiple different churches. I'm just curious, have they, has that feeling been stronger in certain atmospheres, certain churches than others? What contributed to that? And what should Aaron and I do to make sure we're not setting up these invisible barriers? Like, hey, you can't be our friends. You can't, you know, <laughs> actually be close to us. Um, well, I think that was almost explicitly stated to me before. That, oh, really? You know, it's just you can't, ha- you know, they were not interested in having that type of relationship because it, it wasn't fruitful to the way they wanted things to operate. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. They wanted I, some I, level of separation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if, if that's the case, then there will be ramifications of that. Mm-hmm. But maybe that's, you know, that's what they wanted. So, you know, I just t- took that as that was the appropriate way to relate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I didn't feel like I was necessarily missing out on anything. You're still overseers and spiritual leaders in the church that have authority that still doesn't cancel out the fact that we're still brothers and sisters in Mm -hmm. Christ and that there should be some level of communion. Mm -hmm. And I think that type of communion is a a give and take. And I think there, you have to have a certain intimacy with people to actually do that effectively. Mm -hmm. So yeah. However that happens with whoever it is and however long they've been at the church, you know, like that all is so many factors, but yeah, I think that's the direction you want to go. Yeah, I've been thinking about this a little bit more with going through James, where over and over he refers to his readers as brothers and sisters, even when he's giving words of instruction or rebuke. And I think the way that we sort of just breathe in our worlds, thinking about what it means to be a leader or to hold authority or to be the teacher is that you have to keep everyone at an arm's Arms length and Mm -hmm. exercise power over somebody where James does it by kind of getting down with them and saying, I'm one of you. And um, also I can teach as your equal, you know, I can give truth and correction Mm -hmm. and I don't have Mm -hmm. to lord my, you know, position in the church over you, but I can come alongside of you. And I I think that's a really big challenge. You know, we talk about this a lot because I think it is really paradigm shifting Mm -hmm. for the way we think about all of our relationships, but including, you know, clergy and non-clergy in a church. I think often pastors sometimes feel like for people to really respect me, I have to be authoritative. Right. And for that to happen, I have to keep people at an arm's distance or and, they won't respect and always make them yep. feel like I'm above them. Right. And I, at this point, I feel like I used to think that unconsciously, mm-hmm. and I think it always harms relationships. Mm-hmm. It doesn't breed true respect. Right. I think what breeds true respect is just being with people. friendly yeah. and loving and working hard and in being the best pastor you can be, whether that's in your studying or in your counseling or just in your conversing. I, I just know that I naturally can like not be kind to people and keep them at an arm's distance. So why should we try to do that? You know, it's going to be there whether we try it or not. Mm -hmm. So we should fight against it, not, not encourage it, but 
this is a little, maybe this is all a side note, but I think that's, it's really important for us to think about these things. And Mm -hmm. we see Paul, this apostle. Embracing and kissing, man. Yeah. Being (laughs) like, not being above the people he's around. Yeah. And and this dude just raised someone from the dead, all right? Like if you're not like on a a power trip after that, like <laughs> yeah. I mean, great. Uh, this is I think good. All right, AJ, back to you. Well, <clears throat> Paul's farewells continue through chapter 21. Mm-hmm. Um he sails on a couple different ships and along the way he stops in Tyre where some disciples tell Paul that through the spirit he should not go to Jerusalem. Mm. And later in Caesarea, like Aaron mentioned earlier, Agabus and his daughters prophesy of Paul's arrest. And this kind of raises some controversy about prophesying. What was the point of those prophecies if Paul ignored them and went anyway? But we see later that, you know, Jesus was with Paul and said that this is where you need to go. So it's kind of like, were those contradictory? What is there a different type of prophecy, you know, where it's like you what you were saying before, like the someone scrolling through the divine <laughs> agenda. It's like this could happen, you know, so it was just can some be ignored or people make a big deal about this Agabus thing because yeah. they'll say people like w- Wayne Grudem will be like, well, it didn't happen perfectly. So here's a, a good example of where people can prophesy and their prophecies can be flawed. And that's why you need, you know, it's really we can't get in, into this debate, but pretty essentially what he prophesies comes to be. Mm-hmm. Like prophets, often especially when they're enacting something, are not giving precise details along the way. They're giving the a foretelling of that event, and even as these people, multiple people, are telling Paul, "Look, where you're going, there's going to be trouble," and Paul knows this, right. and and we might wonder, well, why did God reveal that Paul's going to go through all of this if he actually wanted Paul to go to it? Why, why are people warning him to avoid it? And, and I think that maybe we need to just step back and say, maybe these prophecies are what allows Paul to persevere through the affliction that he's going to enter into. And these outsiders don't understand why God would want him to do this, but in the end, they simply just commit him to God. And, and I think maybe like, that's all that we should take away from this is don't get hung up with all of these details, but understand that Paul was committed to the faith. He was committed to the Lord Jesus, even when he knew that it would be the end for him. He, he went forward anyway. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what else to say about that. Keep talking us through this. I mean, I'd be interested if you guys knew that Paul had a sister or not and that she had a son. Oh, yeah, because he informs on the, the plot to kill Paul. Yeah, this is action-packed, man, and, and our reading leaves us on a cliffhanger. <laughs> this is r- ridiculous. Well, this is about all the time that we have today, and one of those reasons that we ran out of time is because we spent a lot of time on other things, and that's okay. You know, sometimes you end up talking about some text more than others, but this actually works really well in our favor because our reading is split up for this week with with a cliffhanger as Paul is going through really extraordinary circumstances. So we want to leave you with that exact same cliffhanger 
And next time, we will discuss Paul's trial and journeys and his experiences along the way. But until next time, keep reading the Bible. We'll keep reading the Bible and talking about it together. This podcast is a ministry of Resurrection Church. You can find out more at resurrectionmn.org.